Welcome to Nevertheless, She Persisted. I'm your host, Sadie. Every Friday, I post interviews about mental health, dialectical behavioral therapy, and teenage life. These episodes break down my mental health journey, teach skills to help you cope with life, and showcase testimonials from teens just like you. Whether you've struggled yourself or just want to improve your mental fitness, this podcast is your inspiration to live a life you love and keep persisting. This week on Nevertheless, She Persisted. I didn't want to recover. Recovery was harder than having an eating disorder. I innately believed that I don't deserve love or care or to be happy. I fought as hard as I could fight. I'm making these changes and I'm mm-hmm. and I'm beating this depression. Full recovery is real and it is so worth it. Welcome back to another episode. Today's guest is Lexi Smith, an 18-year-old from Kaysville, Utah. After receiving treatment and fully recovering from anorexia, Lexi is now an advocate for eating disorder awareness and recovery. She is active on social media and schedules speaking engagements regularly to encourage individuals to live a more well-rounded life mentally, physically, and socially. Well, thank you, Lexi, so much for joining me on Nevertheless, She Persisted. I'm so excited to have you today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Okay, so the first question I wanted to ask you was about your mental health journey. So starting from the beginning, can you tell listeners about your journey with your mental health? Of course. It kind of started, I guess, back in like seventh grade. And what happened was I just kind of started to develop some depression in my life. And I was super perfectionistic. And this was <laughs> me too. This was totally normal for me. Mm-hmm. I had always kind of been this way growing up. And for whatever reason, as soon as I hit junior high, it really started to hit me hard. And I thought that this was the worst year of my life. And it was. It was really, really hard. But for however I did it, somehow I got through that. And eighth grade was a little bit better. And ninth grade was pretty great. And then I decided that I wanted to get healthy. I wanted Mm -hmm. to exercise more. I wanted to eat better. And so I set that goal. And it was a very broad goal just to get healthy. And so that was at the start of 2017. And then from there, it kind of spiraled out of control. And this perfectionism kind of drove what became an an anorexic eating disorder and more of an orthorexia type eating disorder that was more health related. Whereas I had such good intentions that just Mm -hmm. didn't end up going the way that I planned. And with all of my genetics and with the environment around me, everything just kind of had this perfect creation into this eating disorder. I was diagnosed with anorexia officially on October 9th of 2017. I was a sophomore in high school at the time. And then I was immediately admitted to Primary Children's Hospital in Salt Lake. Mm -hmm. And there I spent six days. I had an NG feeding tube put in, which went up my nose, down my throat, and then into my Mm -hmm. stomach. And I had this for the following four months. So for a really, really long time, I went to school with it. I um, went to all of my therapy and all my dietitian appointments and everything. And so I just used this feeding tube at night. And then I, in addition to the feeding tube, also ate regular meals. So I was getting a lot, (laughs) a lot of food, a lot of, a lot of calorie consumption to get me back to weight maintenance and to get my body and then to get my Mm -hmm. mind healthy. And then from there, I just kind of went in to recovery. I started to get mad at my eating disorder and everything it had taken from me. Mm -hmm. I wasn't willing to let go of my goals and my ambitions. And so I fought as hard as I could fight. And eventually I was able to reach reach full recovery. And then I've kind of just turned around and become an advocate and kind of devoted the rest of my life to it. That's amazing. Yeah, I definitely see a lot of the same things with me. I I don't know if I, I was someone who had so much 
skepticism towards treatment and recovery and all of that. So I don't think I actively made the choice. I was like, I'm going to fight this mental illness. I'm going to fight my depression because I was like, I can't do that. But slowly but surely, I would make little changes and I would look back and be like, oh, my God, like I'm doing this. I'm making these changes and I'm mm-hmm. and I'm beating this depression. But I'm the same way. I recently realized I was like, this is what I love. I love talking about mental health and teenagers and depression and anxiety and all of this stuff. And I was like, why don't I do this? And so I think I want to go and do psych in college because I was before I was playing around this is like totally off topic before I was playing around with the idea of doing like medical school and being a doctor because I do love helping people but I yes. was like I talk about this for hours like this is what <laughs> I do in my free time like this doesn't make sense yes so yeah. I'm the same way where you you kind of look at what you're so passionate about and where you've come from and you just want to do that for the rest of your life the same way I wanted to be go into the medical field and there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with going into the medical field but for whatever reason I was like this is not for me and so I've decided I'm majoring in psych next I'll start yeah. my psych degree next year and then That's hopefully so go into mental health counseling so that's amazing. Yeah, I, I think I'll go down a similar path. But but I looked at it and I was like, it's not adding up. Like, I just have such a passion for talking about this. And so it didn't feel right to go into something where I, I do love biology and medicine and science in school. But I was like, I just love talking about this so much more. And so, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the next question, I wanted to ask you about your platform. So what inspired you to share your story with others? And then also, has this helped to hurt your mental health in general? It took me a long time to start an Instagram platform. I was already a motivational speaker. Mm-hmm. I was already speaking to youth groups around Utah and particular young women. Mm-hmm. And one of the girls in my school reached out to me and was like, you should start an Instagram. And I was mm-hmm. like, why? Like, I don't, like, I don't, I don't know. If know. I, I don't know if I have enough to share And Mm -hmm. eventually I just kind of bit the bullet and was like, you know, I'm going to start it and I'm just going to see what happens because I've been very familiar with Instagram in the past. And so I was like, you know what, what's it going to hurt? What the heck? Why not? Mm -hmm. So I started this and slowly followers started coming and Mm -hmm. I started sharing content and then I realized, oh my gosh, I have so much to say. I have Mm -hmm. so many things that I want to post about and so many things that I recognize that I want to mention and oh my gosh, I could take this and I'm starting to do coaching. I'm published my workbook. I'm starting to Mm -hmm. get more and more involved in it. And I have absolutely fallen in love with this little community that I've created. And it's just a little community. You know what I mean? It's just small and it's growing. And I love seeing people come and seeing people go. Sometimes people, you know, they unfollow and that's fine. If that's Mm -hmm. not for you, then, you know, see you later. That's the best thing for you. But I love my little community and getting messages from everyone and um, seeing how they're doing and helping them to the best that I can. I I do think for me that it has helped my mental health and mm-hmm. that that connection has helped my mental health. Mm-hmm. I do have to mention though that I think sometimes I look at in recovery accounts, whereas I'm fully recovered, it's not a trigger for me or triggering as, as much to others to view my content. But I think sometimes in recovery accounts for individuals that are still amidst the struggle. Sometimes those accounts can be can be hard for mm-hmm. their followers and for themselves. I don't think for me having a an account while I was still in recovery would have been a good idea. Yeah. Not for me, not for others. There are some that are obviously the exception to that rule, but my best advice is it's to probably hard, wait yeah. until you're until you're recovered. You don't mm-hmm. want to have to deal with relapse. You don't want to have to have 
the accountability of triggering other people's, Mm -hmm. you know, emotions or eating disorder games or tactics or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so, but since I have started my account and I've been fully recovered, it has been absolutely wonderful. That's awesome. Yeah, it's like when you're on the plane and they say, help put on your own oxygen mask before helping kids because if you can't help yourself first, if you're passed out from lack of oxygen, you're no good to someone else. And so you definitely have to take care of yourself first. And I see that in my own relationships. I didn't, I never did speak out about my mental health when I was going through it because I was just in so much denial. But I look at my friendships with people who were um, also struggling. I look at the people I met through treatment and we would feed off each other. And I saw my symptoms as like a competition. And so I had nothing going for me in my life. I mean, of course I did, but I was like, I'm depressed. I'm sad. I have nothing, but I, I'm really depressed. Like I'm not as depressed as the next person you meet. And so that was all I had going for me. And so can become really unhealthy when you're surrounded by those people and that's what you're connecting over. And of course, we we attract people that are going through the same things as us and that that we can relate to because we connect based on emotion. So if you're really sad, if you're really depressed, if you're really anxious, if you're striving for perfection, whatever it is, you attract those people. And so it makes sense that that's how we connect, but it can also just be really unhealthy. And so that's that's like one little step you can take is just surround yourself by the people like you want to be and like parents always say that to me and it's like I'm like no like I like my friends like this is good (laughs) but but you you change based on those around you and so if you surround yourself by healthy motivated people that you look up to and admire you'll surely you'll get there too so yeah I completely agree so another thing I wanted to add on was talking about my own um, mental health journey as I went through treatment and as I got into a better headspace and so that really did change a lot for me over time. When I would go through my mental health, like I talked about, I became kind of competitive about it. And so when I would tell my mental health story, I would optimize for those kind of shock factors, like, oh, I was this depressed, or I was this anxious, or this is what my life looked like. And so as it's evolved over time, now I only focus on what the emotions were, what my core beliefs were, because that's what people can relate to. And so of course, my story is always changing and the way I tell it is always evolving, but it really does speak to the headspace you're at and how you portray that. And so it's 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 hard to tell your story in a way that you can relate to other people and that other people can relate to you because what separates us is like how we symptomatically present. But I found now that when I just talk about my emotions, how I felt really unloved and isolated and alone and that things would never change for me. I was so hopeless. Like that's what people can relate to and that's what we all get. And so, yeah, that's that's how my story has changed over time. And it gives me much more confidence and it makes me a lot more hopeful for myself and other people to tell my story like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I was telling it based on just symptomatically what was happening or arguments with my parents, whatever that was, that was so depressing. Like it would just bring me down and it was awful. And so it hurt my relationships to only be focused on that. So change it. Telling my mental health story has definitely evolved with where my mental health has been at. And so I completely agree. So you really have become an advocate for recovery and overall mental fitness. And so that's like a really hard space to get through from being at like a a severe low and then getting to this point where you can talk from being recovered and help other people. So how did you shift your mindset to when you were at that low, that worst point of your eating disorder to where your mentality is at now? 
I have most definitely come a very, very long way. Mm -hmm. Never in a million years did I think that I would ever even be recovered, not to mention fully recovered. I thought that this Mm -hmm. was something I would struggle with until the day I died. And I I wasn't very educated in the eating disorder world. I didn't know Mm -hmm. all of the terminology. I didn't know all of the statistics. I just didn't understand everything. And I think at first it was really hard and I had to continue to choose recovery every day, even though that's not what I wanted. I didn't want Mm -hmm. to recover. Recovery was harder than having an eating disorder, but it's harder for a shorter amount of time. And recovery is much more sustainable than having an eating disorder. And eventually I had to recognize that eating disorder voice. And it was hard for me to do that because I didn't think of this voice as like something else. I, to Mm -hmm. me, they were my thoughts and they were completely logical, but I eventually had to get mad at this eating disorder voice and start to recognize it. And I started to realize everything it was going to take from me. It was potentially going to take away my future. It was going to take away my schooling. It was going to take away my future family. It was going to take away relationships and all of these things. And I decided to be like, no, you will not take Mm -hmm. this from me. And I actually wrote a letter to my eating disorder. And I said, look, you've been such a companion to me. And I said, but you've literally almost killed me. And I am not going to continue fighting this fight for my mom or my dad or my leaders or my parents or my, you know, my teachers, my therapists. I'm not going to fight for them anymore. I'm going to fight for me because I deserve a successful future without you. And I I was like, I'm going to dig as far as I have to dig for any ounce of strength that I can find. And that's what I did day after day after day until I was able to get to a place where I could see the light at the end of the tunnel and see that full recovery was possible and that I could actually want it eventually. Yeah. No, I I remember the same thing. I'd gone through like outpatient treatment for depression and anxiety for probably two or three years before I went to intensive treatment. And so I talk about this on the podcast all the time because it was just so pivotal to me. And so my parents and I had flown across the country to go to this residential program and they kind of, they asked me, they looked at me, they said, do you want to be here? And I was like, no, I don't want to be here. My parents said I had to be here. And they said, you can't be here unless you want to be and unless you see the wisdom in doing this and you do it for yourself. And so now I look back and I was like, I was on autopilot. I was going to treatment for my parents, for my family, mm-hmm. for my friends, um, because I felt like I had to and I wasn't in it. I was going through the motions and I, and I, Part of it, I look back, I was putting out crisis after crisis and fire after fire, and that was a whole full-time job in itself. And so I did need that intensive environment, but it was also I'd never chosen to work on me. And so I, every single person I've talked to on the podcast, they all talk about their recovery and how things only changed when they chose to work on themselves. And so... And, and, and I, I love that because I look around me at my friends from treatment. I look at people I've met during my journey and it, you don't see a lot, a lot of teens who have fully recovered and the teens who have turned their life around. And it's because you don't see a lot of them wanting to do it for themselves. It's, it's hard. It's, it's so, so, so difficult to get to that place. And it's really sad. It's really sad that teens aren't able to choose to work on themselves and they're not able to reach that recovery. But you can do it. Like we are both sta- like sitting thriving examples of if you choose to work on yourself, recovery is achievable and possible and amazing. It's just it's just taking that first step. And so it's not common to see. It's not common to see full recovery. It's not. It's it's sad. It really is because there's so many resources out there. And yet we just you don't see a lot of success. And because part of it's like your parents are sending you to treatment. You're automatically being forced to be there. Whereas when you're an adult and you sign yourself into like rehab, 
you're the one choosing to be there. You're spending your own money. You're spending mm-hmm. your own time. Right. When you're an adolescent, you're literally being forced to be there. So to so to realize that you still have choices to make, things are still in your hands and you can still choose to get better. You're not being forced to and things are still in your control. That's really hard. And I think that's where you see that difference. And you see these people whose symptoms do change, but mentally they're still in a similar spot and they don't feel true re- true recovery and they, it's, it's really hard to achieve that. So, so I... That's something I I want to remind listeners of is that though it's hard and though it's difficult as a teenager and it feels like things are completely out of your control and maybe you're being forced into treatment, we're both examples that anyone can achieve recovery and thrive when you choose to do it for yourself. And so, yeah, that's definitely something I harp on about all the time. Yes, yes. Amen to that. Are you interested in making your own podcast too? Download Anchor. I released every episode of Nevertheless She Persisted through Anchor and I love it. It's free. You can edit and publish your episodes from anywhere. And they put my podcast on every listening platform like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google. I definitely recommend it. They also have cool background musics, transition musics, and you can record sponsorships like this one. Be sure to check it out. It has everything you need for your podcast. Download the free Anchor app in the App Store or wherever you get your apps or go to anchor.fm to get started. Again, that's anchor.fm. <laughs> so if you could go back to when your mental health journey began, when your eating disorder began, what would you tell yourself? Like, what would you do differently or what would you want as a reminder? One thing that I thought of that maybe I would tell myself more is that I should take care of myself. And when I was originally diagnosed and um, on the way to the hospital, we had to make a we had to stop at a couple of errands and we stopped at my dad's work for just a second. And I remember I didn't even want to look at him. I was so ashamed mm-hmm. and so embarrassed. And there's my mom driving and my dad at the window. And that's what he told me is he said, hey, Lexi, take care of yourself. And it never really hit me until then that I am responsible for myself and only myself. No one else can mm-hmm. really take care of me. I'm sure your parents can foster your well-being until a certain point in your life. But at some point, you have to take over and you have to take care of your physical health. You have to take care mm-hmm. of your mental health. You have to take care of your own social and financial and all of those different components to your overall wellness. And so that's what I would tell myself is that it's not selfish and that I deserved for myself to take care of myself. And then one other thing that I would mention specifically for eating disorders and not just mental health would be that to trust recovery, which mm-hmm. is hard. I That is one of my biggest weaknesses is trust. Mm-hmm. I'm not, <laughs> I don't give trust very easily. And so for me to say to trust recovery, it means a lot because there simply wouldn't be recovered people out there if recovery wasn't worth it. And so clearly it is, and clearly it's possible because there are people out there who are doing it and who are willing to devote the rest of their life to it and who are willing to work themselves out of a job to help others to get to that stage. And so that's what I would tell myself is to take care of myself and to trust recovery. Yeah, I I love that. And when you were talking about that, I was thinking about doing things for other people and being ashamed and guilty about not taking care of yourself. And, and I remember that. I I felt such strong emotions when my parents were so sad for me or so worried about me or they just saw me falling apart. And when my friends saw it and when doctors saw it, like that brought shame and guilt and sadness. But when it was myself, I didn't care. 
I was like, mm-hmm. I deserve this. Like, I don't deserve love or um, care or to be happy because I can't be happy. And so this is what I deserve. And so that's the hardest part. Again, you have to do it for yourself. But at least for me, I innately believed that it wasn't possible and that I didn't deserve it. And so those stronger emotions are the negative ones of shame and guilt and sadness from other people where you see them, they give you that look where they're sad for you or there's the pity or there's the there's the guilt that they think they did something. And so you want to get better for them because you want to make that strong emotion go away, but it's not going to stick and it's not going to work unless you do it. That was one of the hardest things for me was developing that self-love and respect for myself and wanting to get better for me and, and knowing that was possible. And so it's like all those layers. First, you are like working on yourself for other people and you want that to go away, but that doesn't happen until you really work on yourself. And it's harder to listen to that emotional cue because it's subdued compared to what other people are telling you. But yeah. So the next question is is a really tough one, but I don't know how to honestly answer it. So I wanted to ask you, how do you support a friend or someone in your life that has an eating disorder or is just clearly practicing unhealthy behaviors related to their eating or exercise or things like that? This is a question that I get often and is always really hard for me to answer because it's a hard answer to come to mm-hmm. terms with. But really, it's it's two two words, and that's tough love. It's, it's rough. It's rough, but you have to do what is best for them. And so sometimes that is making a decision for them if you're in a position to do so. If, if you're unsure if someone is practicing unhealthy behaviors or if you're noticing certain rituals or if you're certaining fluctuations in weight or mental anguish or just a consuming, consuming thoughts of food or body mm-hmm. image or things like that, feel free to openly ask them. In words, in writing, some way or another, you can pose that and you can say, hey, I am genuinely concerned for your health and for your physical and mental health and say, hey, you know what? I'm aware of these situations in our society and I want to do my part in making sure that you are okay. And then the best thing for them, once they are able to get into treatment or to get whatever resources they can get their hands on, whatever feasible for them, wherever they're at and whatever financial situation they're at, is just to support them, is just to continue to be their friend, is to continue to rally around them and ask about how things are going, congratulate their accomplishments, recognize the strides that they're making in recovery. And it can be hard because there might be certain situations where you'll have to sacrifice your own relationship. And mm-hmm. sometimes you, you've you got to say, you know what, I love you enough that I am willing to put myself on the line and take this step for you and hold your hand while I do it. And you might hate me for it, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but with the hope that they'll come back and someday wrap their arms around you and thank you for that step that you have taken in order to get them the help that they need. And I think a lot of times when we see people struggling, sometimes we're, oh, should I ask? That's so taboo. I don't know. I don't want to look a certain way or I'm just Mm -hmm. not sure. But I think in the long run, we'd rather be safe than sorry. And so I think it's best to ask. It's best to open up. It's best to support. And it's best to use whatever tough love you've got to use. Yeah. And I think one thing for me, when I was at a low, I would, again, I, I thrive from helping people. It's really fulfilling and it makes me really happy. And so 
I would see, again, an unhealthy group of friends around me struggling, and I would become kind of like a treatment coordinator of sorts, and I would Uh be the one that would be going to the counselor or going to the parents or going to the teacher and being like, you need to handle this right now, and that was not good. (laughs) So it's like the balance of being there as a support and getting them the help they need, but not let it consume your whole life. And so for me, I now I, I know for my mental health, I steer clear of that kind of that kind of acute need for treatment or care and that kind of thing, because I know it can be triggering and I know it can be, it's really difficult to manage. I know I can be a support without managing their health and wellness, but I kind of have like mentally, I'm like, okay, one time I will be that support and act as your crisis management and get the adult involved that needs to. And then I'm out. Like I am tapping out. I won't do it over and over again for you. And because it's so mentally like exhausting. exhausting. Yep. <laughs> it's it's so much to put on someone, especially a kid. Mm-hmm. Like you you're dealing with someone's whole life and livelihood and wellness and and you see the pain they're in and you want them to get better and feel better and you just can't put that on someone. You can put that on yourself and and you might feel like you need to and that they need you and there are other adults in their life and people in their life who can help them. So I don't know for listeners what their number is to tap out at, but for me, given the headspace that I've gone to now, it's one time I'll tap out. And that's different from a friend being upset and needing to talk on the phone or crying about a breakup or something like that. But one acute situation where I need to get an adult involved and crisis manage that from a distance place. And I'm like, okay, no more of that. We're tapped out. I'll distance myself from this point. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it's, at one point, I felt very responsible to kind of detect every eating disorder mm-hmm. I could possibly find. And detect- I would like, I would read the DSM and like diagnose everyone. Like, <laughs> what? And I like, think such a mess. one thing I had to tell myself is I'm not responsible for their recovery. I can help them mm-hmm. and I can do my best, but I'm not responsible for it. And so there's sometimes only so much you can do. So I'm glad, I'm glad you brought yeah. that up. Yeah. And because I know myself so well and I've been in treatment with girls for over a year, I see the different core beliefs and the different unhealthy patterns. And so I'll joke to myself or my close friends. and I'm like, oh, that's what's happening right there. Like this is this dynamic with parents, but it's different from becoming involved and, and betting yourself on their recovery because mm-hmm. it's it. We both know how draining it is to recover yourself mm-hmm. and you have control over that. You're making the decisions to fully mentally invest yourself in someone else's recovery when you have no control is pointless and that's like when I think about my parents like oh my god like they just see me going they saw me going downhill and downhill and not choosing to work on myself and there's nothing they could do about it like they wanted that so badly for me to be happy and they couldn't do anything about it and so I thank god I don't have to deal with a kid and getting them to treatment right now and hopefully ever but it's it's mentally I don't know a point where it's worth it for a teenager to invest themselves in the outcome of someone else's wellness and mental health. And not to say not to have a relationship or support someone, but not to invest yourself fully and bet your wellness and your happiness on their recovery and mm-hmm. outcome. For sure. So what advice do you have for teens who are currently struggling with either negative body image or unhealthy eating um, patterns? So I think it's a little bit it's a little bit different for both. So starting with body image, like you said, I think we have to realize... Um, that we're going to have good and bad body image days. And 
there are so many different terms out there that we can use. We can use body confidence or body positivity or fat positivity or body diversity. And all of these mm -hmm. things mean something. There's such technical terms that mean something so different. And I've read a lot from different creators and influencers and people that have all of their different opinions. And what I have come to terms to on my own and my own personal decision is that despite all of the differences among all of these terms that I so greatly love myself, but that my account is a more than a body account. And mm -hmm. what I mean by that is that, sure, I am in full support of body diversity. I actually, I love body diversity. That's one of my favorite concepts ever. Mm -hmm. And I am in full support of those in bigger bodies with like that use hashtag fat positivity. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But I think more than anything, I like to see my body as more than a body. And I mm -hmm. learned everything. I have to give them a little bit of a shout out. I, I learned everything body image related from Beauty Redefined. Um, and mm -hmm. they were a program that I did when I was in treatment. And they taught me that I am not um, an ornament to be looked at. I'm not a decoration on a shelf, but that my body is an instrument for me to use. And with my body, I can do so many things. I can play the piano and I can cook for my family and I can donate blood and help save a life. I can use my body to get up and walk and get myself to school and to drive to work and to support myself and to support those around me. And that's what my body is for, not not to be admired and not to be looked at. And I don't mm -hmm. owe it to anyone else to wear certain things for them to admire and look at. I don't owe it to anyone else to be objectified in any sort of way. And that's what I think of is true body image comes when you realize that you're more than an image. And so I don't recommend standing in the mirror and telling yourself 10 things you like about your body, but instead stand there and tell, your thing, tell yourself, you know what, I'm going to accept myself as I am. I don't have to change anything to love my body, but I'm going to be so grateful because my arms can move and my legs can move and my my mind can think and I can move and use and jump and run and do whatever I have to do with my body. And that's what that's where true body image comes from is when you realize that you're more than just mm -hmm. that outer shell. Mm -hmm. I love that. So what advice do you have for parents of a teenager or a child or, or an adult who is struggling with an eating disorder or eating disorder tendencies? I think, once again, you got to use a little bit of tough love. I remember there were some days that we would be in total arguments with me and my mom or me and my dad and just yelling and yelling and super frustrated, both of us at each other, at this eating disorder. And there were other times that we would just hug and cry together. And there had to be that balance. There had to be both. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I think parents can do is they can't, they can't be responsible for their child or whoever it is that they're looking over to recover. They're, they can't be the sole one accountable for that. And so they need to seek professional advice. They need to look mm -hmm. into a dietitian, an eating disorder dietitian, if possible. They need to seek a therapist as specialized as possible. And even just seeing your general physician or your pediatrician also helps. And I had all three of those members as a part of my recovery team. And then you're going to have to invest in some sort of treatment and recovery, whether that is therapy, whether that's coaching, whether that's courses and workbooks, whether that's certain products, whatever it may be, mm -hmm. um, you're going to want to invest in that. And then I did have a few pieces of advice for parents 
who are trying to teach and foster a good environment. There are some things that I think we focus on, one of which are numbers and weight. Mm -hmm. I personally have made the decision in my life, and I recommend it to everyone I can tell, to ditch the scale. There is no reason you need to even know what you weigh. And quite frankly, I haven't weighed myself for over two years, two and a half, three Mm -hmm. years almost. I have no idea what I weigh and I don't need to know what I weigh Mm -hmm. because I am able to listen to my body and I know what is healthy and I know that I feel good and therefore I am good. I don't need to know what I weigh. I don't need to know those numbers. I've also been able to quit counting. I used to track everything in my life. Yeah. Everything from calories to my steps to my heartbeat to mm-hmm. my water intake to absolutely everything. I mean, literally down to the calories in gum. Um, oh my gosh. Like it was ridiculous and completely consuming my everyday life. And I've been able to completely quit quit tracking. I do not support fitness trackers in any way, shape, Mm -hmm. or form anymore. And I used to love them. And I cried when I couldn't have my Fitbit anymore and on and on. But that really creates this orthorexic environment where you can kind of continue an eating disorder without anyone knowing. It's socially acceptable to do those things. And we need to start pointing it out and being like, no, that is not healthy for your mind or for your body. And that's why I would say as far as teaching others and showing them and being an example of that and saying, you know what, if you are in need to, quote unquote, lose weight, listeners can't see, but I'm using little quotation marks (laughs) in the air to lose weight. I think we need to start posing that as differently. Sometimes our health does come into concern and sometimes we do need to lower our cholesterol or I don't know, whatever else it may be, but let's... blood sugar or something like that. Yes, yes. Let's start looking at it like that, not as weight loss. Because Mm. exercise and health, there are so many more benefits than weight loss. And weight loss is just one of them. And that's not always beneficial, you know what I mean? But like for me, exercise is the fact that I can relieve stress and I can feel good about my body. And I can sit in my body for a minute and feel it. And I can feel good about myself And I can really come to terms with who I am as an individual. And I think that being an example of those things creates the best possible environment to prevent eating disorders. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there are some times that they can't be prevented. They're genetically, Mm -hmm. you know, and other environmental factors that are involved. But you can... It's kind of like the flu. You can try yeah. and prevent the flu. Sometimes so it's like inevitable. Coronavirus now, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can try and prevent it. Sometimes it is an inevitable, but we should do all that we can to prevent it, mm-hmm. if at all possible. Yeah, I, I agree. Even from like a depression and anxiety standpoint, I talk a lot about emotional vulnerability, which is when you're just more susceptible to emotions and to depression and to feelings of anxiety and. The things that cause that are things like lack of sleep or too much sleep, not eating or eating too much. And so these basic bodily needs, when you don't maintain those, you become more depressed, you become more anxious, and it's so much more difficult to maintain a relationship or be effective. And so it definitely definitely takes time to improve those things and get to a point. And so that's something I want to stress as well. So anything else you want to add or tell listeners or anything like that? I think just kind of to recap, my biggest message that I love, I love to kind of be a walking example of is that full recovery is real and that Mm -hmm. it is so worth it. And that if anything, I am standing living proof of it. 
that not only is recovery real, but that full recovery is real, that it never bugs me. It, mm-hmm. No no day comes and goes where I have an eating disorder thought. I don't play eating disorder games anymore. I don't have a food police controlling all of my emotions. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't deal with those thoughts anymore, and I never thought that that would be possible. And if you could see how wonderful it is mm-hmm. to live like that, you would fight for it harder than you're going right now. Yeah. And so for me, I would say go for it. Go for it. You've Mm -hmm. got to fight with any ounce of strength you can find. And you've got to push as hard as you can push. Of course, taking some time for yourself. We've got to be realistic here. But still, full recovery is so real. It's so worth Mm -hmm. it. I believe that that recovery is possible for absolutely everyone. I 100% believe that. And that if anything, I am rooting for you in recovery and I'm rooting for you and for your mental health and for that Mm -hmm. journey. And that someday, hopefully you can stand beside me and advocate right along with us. Mm -hmm. And I want to circle back to how it's not something you deal daily with anymore, which are those harmful thoughts. And it's not for lack of effort and maintenance. Like you have to maintain a regular diet and not like an unhealthy diet, but eating normal foods Mm -hmm. at normal times. And, and putting up safeguards to not get back into those um, unhealthy thoughts and steering away from possible triggers. And for me, it's maintaining my sleep and eating regularly and checking in with my parents and making sure that that relationship is still healthy so that home feels like a safe and happy place and building relationships with my friends so I can get those moments of joy. So it's not, mental health is never a thing where you're just like, okay, I'm done. I'm healed. It's over. Yes. We're good. Yes. Tap out. It's, it's continuous mm-hmm. and it, it's easier. It's easier to maintain than it is to recover. Yes. But it, it takes maintenance for sure. And, and I always, always, always am talking about how if you're not actively working to improve yourself, you're going to digress and you're going to go backwards. And a lot of the time you don't realize it or you do realize it and you want to ignore it. So everyone, everyone can benefit from working on their mental fitness and their mental health. So yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me and sharing your story. And I loved this episode we just recorded. I can't wait for everyone to listen to it. You guys can find Lexi on Instagram at everyounce.ofstrength and find our workbook, The Recovery Workbook, on Amazon.com. Thank you again for joining me. You are so welcome. Thanks for having me. Of course. If you enjoyed this week's episode of Nevertheless, She Persisted, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share with your friends and family. To stay updated on new episodes dropping and bonus content, follow Nevertheless She Persisted on social media. Instagram at She Persisted Podcast, Twitter at Persist Podcast, Facebook at Nevertheless She Persisted Podcast with Sadie Sutton, and check out my website, ShePersistedPodcast.com. And don't worry, all of these are linked in today's episode notes. Don't forget to subscribe, and I'll see you next Friday.